Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, July 10th, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together. We hope you had a great 4th of July. Hopefully it wasn't too hot for you. And uh, we're happy to uh, to have you back here for a new live episode. We hope you enjoyed the hurricane special last week. And if you didn't uh, see it, you uh, can subscribe to our YouTube page and watch along. And we'll be uh, doing some clips throughout the next month or so um, from our visit with the Hurricane Hunter. So tonight we have on with us a Chief Meteorologist, Ed Piotrowski from WPDE, ABC 15 News in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Ed's a friendly face if you live along the Grand Strand. Well, if you visited Myrtle Beach, I'm sure you've seen Ed on TV as well and a, a great friend of our show too. So we're happy to have Ed with us uh, tonight. So if you are watching, uh, this is a live show and we'd love for you to interact with us. And you can do that one of many different ways. You can uh, follow along on our Facebook Live or our Periscope streams, or you can tweet us at Carolina WX Group. And uh, if you have any questions for Ed or for the panelists throughout the show, just tweet those to us and we'll be monitoring it throughout the evening. And uh, we'll... Uh, throw out some questions if you have any or some comments, and uh, we appreciate that. And if you're listening on the podcast version, we'll let Ed um, give out some of his social media information towards the end of the show. That way, if you're visiting Myrtle Beach or if you have a question about Myrtle Beach weather, uh, you can tweet or Facebook Ed, and he can uh, get you the answer for it. So, again, this is show number 283. We are closing in on our 300th show and excited about that as well. So, um, with that, I want to bring in our guest, uh, Mr. Ed Piotrowski. Ed has been a friendly face to the show. He's been on several times, but tonight we don't really have a set uh, topic. We're going to get to know Ed. We haven't um, done one of our get to know uh, shows for uh, the past few months, so we thought Ed would be a great uh, addition to that. So, Ed, welcome to the show, and uh, we're happy to have you back with us. Thank you, guys. I, I very much appreciate you having me. Always fun to be with you folks. And I think the last time I was on, we were talking about the Myrtle Beach tornado that occurred on July 6th of 2001. They went right down Myrtle Beach. Last big tornado I've ever seen in our viewing area. Yeah, and uh, that uh, was one of, I guess, one of the most videoed um, video oh, yeah. uh, tornado for your area. Uh, to talk about that, my first question uh, to you, Ed, is uh, you've been in the Carolinas uh, your entire meteorological career. You uh, started in New Bern and then moved down to uh, the uh, WPDE. So you've been in the area for about 28 years. Mm -hmm. Has anything really stood out to you? I know you've covered winter storms, hurricanes, flood events, tornadoes, like we were talking about. Take, talk to us about the, the last 28 years and, and maybe what's kind of stood out to you uh, from, from your career here in the Carolinas. Boy, probably three distinct things I can, I, I can really remember. And you go back to 1999 with Hurricane Floyd and I think everybody remembers that Hurricane Floyd was nearing Category 5 strength when it was moving through the Bahamas. And uh, it prompted the single largest peacetime evacuation in American history to that point. So it was quite a big scare for the Carolina coast. It was the only time we've ever moved our weather center back to the city of Florence uh, because of that real possibility. So that was the, we've had hurricanes before that that I dealt with, but that one was the one that really uh, got me more nervous than any other until the last three or four years with uh, Matthew and, of course, uh, Florence last year. Probably the the uh, the most memorable weather event in my career has to be the Myrtle Beach tornado. Our weather office used to be located at the Myrtle Beach Pavilion. And uh, I remember that day getting a phone call from somebody saying they just saw a tornado come ashore. And as you guys know, 99 out of 100 times when somebody says that, it's not a tornado. Uh, but this indeed what it was. I went out on the back porch, looked to the north, and I saw 
a water spout coming in off the ocean, literally a block north of where I was, come right over the pavilion and then became this majestic funnel about two blocks south of me. And that's when it was at its peak uh, after the fact, after analysis, an F2 tornado with winds up to 150 miles per hour. And it really is remarkable that nobody was uh, seriously hurt or killed given that that week in Myrtle Beach is the really the busiest week of the entire year. So very, very fortunate. Uh, the video, like you said, was amazing. Nobody had cell phones back then, but everybody had a video camera. So it was pretty neat to see the uh, evolution of that tornado from start really to finish. And so, Ed, for, for folks who may not be familiar with uh, ABC 15, you guys cover both North and portions are North South Carolina and even portions of North Carolina. Kind of give us a layout of, uh, of your forecast area and some of the areas you have to cover. Uh, roughly from I-95 all the way to the coast. Of course, uh, just west of I-95, we cover Darlington, Marlboro, Dillon counties. We get into Chesterfield County, but that's more of a Charlotte uh, actual county. Uh, in North Carolina, our viewing area does cover Scotland and Robeson counties. Columbus County, which is actually closer to Myrtle Beach, is in the Wilmington market. So it's quite a challenge, as you well know, especially in the wintertime. You can have a huge snowstorm along and west of I-95, and we've got nothing but rain along the coast. And then good luck trying to figure out where that transition zone is going to be uh, any, any given winter day. And, and so, Ed, talking about that, we were talking about memorable moments. Um, one that you guys had a little skirt with uh, where Shay lives there in Charleston. They had a little bit more snow, but the uh, the winter weather event that took place right. uh, last year, I mean, you were talking about it. You guys even have brushes with winter weather. Maybe some folks may not equate the beach with winter weather. No, that's true. And uh, if you all go back to 1989, two days before Christmas of 1989, we had 13 inches of snow in Myrtle Beach, 13 inches on the beaches themselves. So it's really the only white Christmas that we've ever had uh, where we had an inch of snow on the ground at Christmas time. Um, a couple of years ago, or uh, I think it was about a year ago this past January, we saw all that snow in Charleston. Everything was lining up for a big snow for us as well. And then we had this infamous hole develop right over Horry County where the air temperature was just warm enough above the surface where snow changed to sleet. And it was a long enough period that it really cut down on our snow totals. And I remember that afternoon forecasting, upping my forecast to, I think, three to five inches of snow and tagging with let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. And it never snowed very much at all that evening. So that was one of our bigger busts, if you will. And that's just the nature of, of weather sometimes. No matter how good of a forecaster you are, you are absolutely positively going to bust from time to time. And that's why I never brag about any forecast I get right, because I know my time is coming. So Ed, being a TV meteorologist, it's a totally different game from the National Weather Service forecasters and all the other, uh, you know, more, maybe more private sector meteorologists that do agricultural consulting. But you're actually on air during some of these huge weather events, such as you mentioned Florence uh, and Matthew over the last couple of years. Tell us a little bit about how nerve wracking it is to be in the studio while these storms are bearing down um, and you're providing your viewers with accurate um, and up to the day information as best as you can. Yeah, that uh, that is quite the challenge because there's a lot of uncertainty, as we all know, as you get farther away from an event and to go on television each and every day. It's important to be very confident in what you're saying. That doesn't necessarily mean you know what's going to happen, but you've got to be honest and confident and why you don't know exactly what's going to happen. And then you fine tune the forecast and you get a better idea. You hone in on a solution as you get closer and closer. For me, it's most important to never sensationalize anything. If I don't know what's going to happen, 
I'll tell you that. And I'll tell you when you should come back to, to find out when uh, we think we'll know. Um, bottom line, people depend on not only accurate information, but stuff that's not sensationalized. Um, too often people try to swing for the fences, trying to be a hero. And unfortunately they end up being zeros a lot of times. So uh, being the voice of reason is what I try to do in my market so that people make decisions wisely based on the best information that we have at the time. And it was crazy with Hurricane Florence, as you well know, at one point, Hurricane Florence was in a position out over the Atlantic Ocean where historically since 1851, no tropical storm or hurricane had ever reached the eastern United States. Uh, with that said, we all looked at the models. We knew that there was some anomalous steering flow, uh, steering flows that were going to develop over the eastern seaboard, the blocking high over the Ohio Valley, for example. And so we couldn't write this system off. And unfortunately, uh, we won the worst part of the lottery, the hurricane coming toward the Carolina coast. We were grateful that it weakened considerably uh, before getting here, but all along we knew this was going to be a massive rain event. And as bad as it was in my viewing area, it was much worse in southeastern North Carolina, as we all know. But you know, to people at home, if if one house floods, that is an absolute catastrophe for them. So there really is no such thing as oh, we you know we escaped the worst of it or uh, uh, we dodged a bullet because some people in our viewing area didn't. We lost uh, five people were killed in our viewing area during Hurricane Florence. So. And yeah, I, that's and one of those things. Wow. Go ahead, Evan, wow. Go ahead, okay. So that's, that's one of those things with Florence um, that people honestly are still, I'm sure, struggling from uh, and the impacts uh, even just a year later. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, Matthew from a couple of years ago? I guess it's been three years now yeah. um, and what that was like in your viewing area. Well, Hurricane Matthew dumped more than a foot of rain, especially inland from the immediate coast. And a little town called Nichols, which is in Marion County, sits between the Little PD River and the uh, Lumber River. Both of those rivers severely flooded and uh, nearly 95% of that town actually went underwater. And those people um, have homes that were passed down from one generation to the next. So they were not able to rebuild. Uh, a lot of them were not because they just didn't have the money to do so. So eventually they got more help, people started to rebuild, and then the same thing happened again during Hurricane Florence. So for some people, they've lost their homes uh, two times in about three years. But Matthew, uh, Matthew was the crazy storm in that it was weakening rapidly, it was becoming non-tropical and spreading out. And we had some very strong winds on the backside of the system that pretty much surprised everybody. And basically what happened there as a storm was spreading out, it was also drawing in some drier air just below the rain level. And as that was happening, rain was falling into that drier air where the winds are stronger, of course, and it cooled the air. And that came crashing to the ground, producing 60 and 70 mile per hour wind gusts over a large part of our viewing area after the storm was beginning to move away, which is almost unheard of with a hurricane. So that was quite surprising uh, to see, but the GFS actually picked up on that a couple of days before. Yeah, and, and just to, to touch on that, Ed, I remember I rode that storm out down in Bluffton, and I, I, I was still a firefighter at that time. I remember there being a, a huge fire up in North Myrtle Beach that was wind-driven. The, the firefighters were unable to fight the fire, and you know they they, they had you know five or six houses on fire at one time that were that were uh, wind-driven by seventy mile per hour winds. Uh, I mean, some some of the stuff we saw during that was insane. Yeah, that was that was incredible, and, and as you mentioned, the wind was so strong they couldn't do anything about it. And uh, I think Summer Dash, who's our main anchor now, she actually was there and put that video on Facebook or was live on Facebook with it. And it literally got millions and millions of views because of how extraordinary this fire was during a raging windstorm and rainstorm as well. 
Ed, I saw you, uh, we were talking about Matthew and Florence. Um, I saw a post that you um, put on your Facebook page after the events talking about how many hours and, and days that you were there at the station. And, and I was able to watch some of your live stream. And, and I know you were there almost 24 hours a day right. throughout that period. For those folks who may be interested in weather in the broadcast section, uh, talk about what goes in behind the scenes when you're preparing for a major event like this. I know you guys have uh, three or four meteorologists and you have a lot of producers, but talk about the preparations that you guys, not only are you, you have to deliver the news, but you're also worried about your family. So kind of talk to us right. about the, the life, life and day of, of a week of preparing for a hurricane like you did last year for Florence. Sure. As you all know now with social media, people are talking about a tropical system sometimes 10 days before it, it actually gets to any location. So uh, for me and a lot of the other meteorologists I know across the Carolinas, um, you're already in the thick of it at that point in time because you're not only discussing the possibilities of what could happen, but you're also trying to keep the rumor mill at a minimum as well because there's so much crap out there as you well know. Um, so for me, it, it becomes almost a 24-7 job, 10 days, 12 days out, all the way through and then afterwards as well. For me, usually about two or three days out is the last time I'll be at home. And Florence was the first hurricane that two to two and a half days out when I was heading to work that I thought, well, this is a real possibility that we're going to get hit by a category three or four hurricane. We might get category one or two at my house. So I started boarding up. I had my house actually boarded up before I went to work. And uh, do that in your neighborhood if you're a meteorologist and see what people do. They see the meteorologist boarding up. They kind of freak out about that. But I had to do that two or three days ahead of time. Um, we get to work. And of course, there's a lot that goes into discussing the coverage that the news folks are going to do. For me, it's about uh, obviously talking about the impacts. You know, I can say 20 inches of rain and 75 mile per hour winds. But what does that mean to the person at home and how should they prepare for that? So... That's what a lot of our graphics are tailored to at that point in time. And, you know, it's leading up to the storm, forecasting what's going to happen, letting people know uh, what they should be doing now, where they should be going if an evacuation order is given. And then you get through the storm as well. That first part is just preparing. Then you're going through the storm. And then half of the coverage is actually after the hurricane has passed. Mostly it's a news story at that point in time, but in our area, uh, obviously, we had a lot of river flooding that uh, really didn't peak for about two to three weeks after the hurricane had already gone by. So it was a long month and a half uh, between when Florence formed off the African coast until the flooding finally subsided. And uh, anybody who's going to get into television weather has got to know that there is no such thing as an eight to five job um, at all. Bottom line is you're going to work many hours during big events, what I call the Super Bowls of weather. There's probably eight to 10 of those a year in your, in your television market. That's when you need to be there the most uh, for the people that you actually serve. For me, because I've been here 25 years, um, they're usually going to put me on ahead of everybody else. That's not to say that our team isn't great. I have some phenomenal folks with me uh, that I work with. Uh, but for the most part, they've been here maybe a year or so, sometimes up to two years. So it's, uh, it usually falls on the guy with uh, the most seniority who is in front of the camera the most. And I have you know, all the experience I have since 1994 when I got here uh, with hurricanes. I know the area very well. So Ed, keep talking about hurricanes. We, we, we continue to talk about uh, you know, your coverage of those and you've done a fantastic job. I mean, once we roll up the you. sleeves, you, you know it's business from there on out. So um, hats off to you and the Florence coverage and all the coverages before. 
thank you, you. Do a fantastic job up there one question i have for you and this relates back to evacuations right we've seen development we've seen population grow astronomically over the last couple of decades along the coastline especially here in charleston my question is along the lines of is myrtle beach is the grand strand ready for a major hurricane and if not What's the evacuation efforts up your way? Do you think they've improved since since Floyd? We had a pretty big nightmare here in Charleston during Floyd. Right. And still our interstates are only four lanes, but what's it like in Myrtle Beach getting out of town? It really depends on the time of the year. I mean, the infrastructure is not there here either. They're lobbying very hard to get I-73 built. So we have another major evacuation route out of town. Because the bottom line is this, the only real big highway coming into Myrtle Beach is Highway 501. We've got Highway 9 in the north end, um, Highway 544, but that connects to 501 and Highway 378. Um, we have got phenomenal emergency managers in Horry and Georgetown counties. Those two counties become one during a tropical system. One will always evacuate with the other or vice versa. And uh, depending on the time of the year, if it's the middle of summertime when our population swells, evacuation take more than 35, 36 hours to do so. They don't believe anything's coming this way. And we just need the infrastructure. That's the bottom line. We need more roads. Uh, we've grown much faster than our infrastructure has. And it doesn't look like that's going to be alleviated anytime soon. So, you know, I always tell people just evacuate. You'd much rather be safe than sorry. Four out of five times, you're not going to get hurricane force winds. But the one time you don't evacuate could be the time you're stranded and nobody can help you. As we right. all know, when the winds get to a certain level, not even emergency
across the green screen is so unique because it, there's so many tourists down there. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you could, I guess, play the role of emergency manager or, you know, emergency planner for one day, what would be one thing you might add or change to the, to the to plans, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to help the process? I mean, I, we do have phenomenal emergency managers. I know uh, Sam Hodge and Randy Webster. I went to the National Hurricane Center uh, conference a couple of years ago and sat in a panel after Matthew and after Hurricane Florence. And these two were rock stars. I mean, everybody from the National Hurricane Center knew them and loved them. So they do a phenomenal job. But I mean, if I could change one thing, it would be the infrastructure for sure. A lot of right. people don't want to leave because it takes forever to get away from the Grand Strand. You yeah, know, I, I was going to follow up with it. You know, you guys are so unique because, uh, you know, the majority of your population probably from the end of June to the middle of August is, is, is vacationers. Exactly. And how, how is it? There's got to be some difficulties there in being able to communicate uh, the risk to all these people that are from out of town that just don't know you and trying to gather that trust. That's got to be, you know, momentously hard. It really is. Uh, we have learned, though, that a lot of times people that are on vacation and not from hurricane prone areas are scared to death of what could happen. A lot of times they'll leave kind of early. Um, it's the people that have lived here a long time and experienced hurricanes and think they've been through a big hurricane when in reality they have not. Even for Hurricane Hugo in our viewing area, it's a Cat 4 near Charleston. But for us, we didn't have anything worse than Category 1 winds. The storm surge was big. We had a lot of damage from the storm surge. But uh, So we fight the battle with locals more than we do with tourists a lot of times. But you still have a ton of people trying to get out the beaches. And with evacuations, there are certain roads that you had, depending on where you live or where you're staying in a hotel, you have to take a certain evacuation route away from the beach. For instance, if you're at the Skywheel in Myrtle Beach, you'll take 501. If you live in Surfside, you got to go up 544. But if you live in Garden City or Myrtle's Inlet, you got to go out through Georgetown. That way it spreads all those people out from Little River all the way down to Georgetown. So it's, it's a bit more efficient that way, but it's still uh, a tall task for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'd, I'd like to second what you said about the Horry County emergency managers. You know, back in 2016, I, I did chase Matthew down in the lower part of the state. But the flood event, you know, was a couple of days uh, soon to come afterwards. Uh, like you're talking about Nichols and Conway with the Waccamaw and uh, Lumber River. Uh, you know, the Horry County emergency managers, they asked for uh, mutual aid help from you know fire departments very, very early on. So uh, two days afterwards, I go back to work and uh, I get deployed to Horry County and spent uh, 72 straight hours there working. Wow. Uh, you know, there was so many roads closed down there, so much flooding. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, see their emergency managers being so proactive and, uh, you know, want to get extra help in there because the infrastructure was so strained was uh, pretty, pretty incredible. They really are phenomenal. I mean, you know, especially after Hurricane, you know, after Hurricane Matthew, we set records on just about every river in our viewing area. Literally two years later, those records are broken by nearly three feet. Uh, in on the Waccamaw River in Conway, for instance, the uh, Intracoastal Waterway in Stockasty. Some of those neighborhoods on the Intracoastal Waterway have flooded three of the last four years. I mean, people have lost everything. And, you know, people talk about government buyouts and so on and so forth, but you never get what the house is really worth. Uh, so it's very difficult for these people to move on sometimes. I totally agree. Um, yeah, Scotty, kick it back over to you. All right. Thank you, Chris. Um, Edward. <laughs> seems like we're continuing this hurricane theme, but um, that, that's a lot what you have to deal with. Um, earlier this year, uh, the South Carolina House recognized you, uh, honoring you with for your service to, to South Carolina and to the Grand Strand area. You also received the John Coleman Award for being a best broadcaster, uh, communicating those hurricane threats. Um, 
I watch your social media. I think a lot of us do, and I give you bravo, um, oh, round of applause for what you do for for the folks in the Grand Strand. Talk to us about social media and and how sometimes yeah it can be hinders to us because we like you said earlier we see all these uh, wish casts or these uh, apocalyptic right. things that that could happen, but. Uh, in this day and time, social media is one of our biggest tools that we use to communicate. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that and, and how you've seen it progress over the past um, several sure. years. You know, I don't have it figured out at all. I mean, I look to a lot of people for guidance on that. A lot of uh, our friends in the Carolinas, uh, you know, Brad and and Tim Buckley, Brad Panovich, Eric Thomas, and, and some other folks, including James Spann in Alabama, to see how they're doing social media and what's working for them and, and what's working for me. But Social media is another job now. It's actually more work than actually what we do on television because it is something that's 24 seven. People want information now and a lot of people are not waiting for newscasts anymore. So you've got to give them information. You got to find that balance of, of doing social media, giving people what they want, but also driving them somehow to watch a newscast to keep you employed. Um, I think we all remember, was it, it was, it was Irma 2017. If I say this name, I'm sure a lot of you are gonna remember the name Quavis Hart. Does that ring a bell with anybody? The guy who put the video together, I think he worked at Walmart and he put a video together talking about a 50 foot wall of water coming to the Carolina coast with Irma. And this is what the media is not telling you kind of a thing. So you end up uh, sitting and putting out fires a lot of the time when it comes to social media. But what I love about social media more than anything is it allows me to uh, go into much greater detail and much greater depth with what we think is going to happen in our viewing area. And I learned that during my Facebook Lives during Hurricane Florence, uh, people just were hungry for more information, more than what they were getting on television. So they would tune in at eight o'clock each night and I do a half hour Facebook Live talking about everything that uh, was going on with Florence, why these things were happening or why they were not. And I think that empowers people. The more they know, the more likely they are to make good decisions. And uh, that's ultimately what you want them to do so that they don't lose their lives in a hurricane or a tornado or anything else. So, and social media is not going away as we all know. I don't know what the solution is uh, to keep you know eighth graders and fifth graders from pretending to be meteorologists and putting out these forecasts that are gloom and doom and they're shared millions of times. It's, it's just crazy. you know. And that's social media. You put a cat on the uh, on the social media, you get a million likes. You put a legit forecast for a hurricane, and people don't like it as much. You know how that goes. That's the most frustrating part about it. it for sure. <laughs> well, you, it's it's frustrating for sure. Um, we could do a whole show about that. Um, right. One other thing uh, I wanted to mention before uh, I toss it to Peter because Peter's got a fantastic question coming up. Um, Kathleen's been watching tonight. She's commenting a lot on uh, on her Facebook Live, and she's talking about a hurricane box. And I kind of parallel that into you do a lot of work in the community in the right. Grand Strip, and uh, you uh, are very passionate about that. And uh, something that I think it's really good to see meteorologists. People see you on TV all the time, but for you to actually be out there uh, rubbing elbows and shaking hands and talking to these folks, talk about how this community. Um, work that you do, how it's really helped out because I see a lot of people watching tonight comment about hurricane boxes and, and ideas right. and things they've heard from you. So talk a little bit about being out in the community and the outreach part. You know, it's incredibly important to me because first impressions are everything. And so when you're out there meeting somebody, they've kind of sort of got preconceived notions 
of what they think about you, whether it's from television or they think every TV person is a snob, whatever it may be. So uh, I enjoy meeting people. I do a lot of speaking engagements at schools. Uh, we do a lot of hurricane talks uh, to civic groups, church groups, uh, various uh, organizations uh, associated with towns and so on and so forth. In fact, I do about 150 speaking engagements a year, and that includes emceeing events as well. But um, the greatest compliment that I can get is somebody says, I'm just as nice in person as I am on television. And if people think that they know you, uh, they're more likely to trust you. And one of my old general managers once said, you can have all the fancy graphics in the world, you can be the best meteorologist in the world, but if you're not a good communicator and you're not involved in your community, those people may never really trust you. So the more you can get involved in your community, the more trust you build with those folks and the more they're likely to heed any kind of warnings or information that you're passing along to them. So it's very, very important, in my opinion, to, to make sure you do that, especially with the kids. They, they love being on TV. It's, it's a win-win. I go to a school, take video, and I always put it on social media and put it on television as well. So a lot of fun. And I'll wear crazy suits from time to time as well. No doubt. You wear long sleeve, crazy suits in the middle of the summer. I don't know how you do it. Yeah, I, I could just see the headline, meteorologist dies of heat exhaustion. <laughs> You're too stupid, but... Um, I actually got that idea, and I don't know if you guys know who Eric Fisher is up in Boston. He wears a snowsuit like the one I have um, to deliver his uh, winter forecast each year. So I decided to wear that in a parade, and people absolutely loved it. So we eventually moved on to the St. Patrick's Day suit. Uh, I was the Grand Marshal for the Sun Fun Parade this past June, so we got that. And it just took off, and I wore a July 4th one as well. So I'm not going to do one for, for Thanksgiving, I don't think. <laughs> So, Ed, uh, we'll throw this question out there to you. Uh, in your opinion, what does the future look like for the meteorology field? You know, I think that people are always going to watch people on television. Of course, the pie is getting smaller because of, you know, so many cable stations out there. We've got a tremendous amount of ways to get information on your computer and on your phone. There's always going to be a need for a television meteorologist or a multimedia meteorologist. You're, somebody's going to have to come up with a forecast, put that you know, on social media, put it on your website, or you know, eventually on Netflix or something, you're going to go in there and choose what stories of a newscast you want to see, what weathercast you want to see. So I think we'll be developing you know, more weathercasts for all these different products that are out there, more so than just television. But I don't think television is going to completely disappear. We may conglomerate or you know come together and and do more as groups, but you know my company is Sinclair Broadcast Group, and they tried that consolidation thing uh, or centralized newscasting where they did it out of Baltimore, and they openly admitted it was the worst thing they had ever done. That it was more important to have people in the communities uh, to make sure that they were the ones delivering the information because again, people knew them and trusted them more. So I, I think. The future obviously is is not as bright as it was if you started in this business 20, 30 years ago when you only had three channels out there. Um, but I still think that there's a place for television meteorologists. I think those huge salaries are long gone, but you could still make a good living at it. All right, Ed, we're going to end the interview with some fun questions for you. Okay? All right. All right. So first one, it's kind of more of a serious question. Uh, mentors, Who, who's some mentors in, in, in the meteorology field that, that you look up to? I have four in particular, and you guys know them. First one, Eric Thomas. Eric Thomas I've known since 1994. I remember meeting him at a conference, at a Doppler conference in Charlotte. Uh, he's actually my best friend and was the best man at my wedding. 
Um, so that's Eric, uh, Greg Fischel at a WRAL in Raleigh. He's no longer there and happy doing what he's doing now. Um, Rob Perillo, who is a meteorologist in Lafayette, Louisiana, has been through a ton of hurricanes. And some of you may remember or know of Tim Heller, who was at ABC uh, 13 in Houston. Uh, two guys that I watched a lot when I was coming up through my career because of all the hurricanes that they were uh, experiencing there. So I learned a tremendous amount uh, from those four guys on uh, on meteorology and delivering the best information so as to scare not to scare people to death. All right, second question, which I knew you and Eric Thomas were close. So funny Eric Thomas story. You and Eric. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> we were uh, – let's see. What is a funny story with Eric? We were on the golf course, and we've done some funny videos on the golf course when it comes to, uh, hey, the, the, uh, the world just came to an end. We're the only two people left. If you, if you know Eric, Eric is one of the uh, larger-than-life character. I mean, he's got a tremendous personality, hilarious. Um, I've pulled some pranks on him. He's pulled some pranks on me. But uh, we just have a lot of fun uh, when we're together. We see each other conferences mostly, and occasionally we'll see each other uh, if I go to Charlotte, if he comes down to Myrtle Beach. So he's just a great guy. Eric's, Eric's my mentor, too. He is uh, the person who got me into weather. Uh, favorite spot on the Grand Strand? Let's see. I love going to Merle's Inlet right on the uh, marsh walk there because it's not overgrown, but you have this beautiful marsh out looking over Garden City and the ocean. It's just very peaceful and beautiful. If you've never been to the Grand Strand, it's one of the least commercialized area areas that look pretty natural compared to downtown Myrtle Beach, which is phenomenal. Uh, but that's more of a tourist attraction there. But Merle's Inlet, if you've never been, I would recommend you do that. Some good restaurants there too. Oh my gosh, they're <laughs> phenomenal. I mean, seafood is caught daily there, so. Uh, a couple more, favorite hobby. I actually like photography. Um, I get a ton of pictures every, uh, almost every day, it seems like. And about 15 years ago, people were sending me so many photos that about six or seven years ago, actually, uh, I started getting photos about that long ago. But then about six or seven years ago, we decided to do a weather calendar. And uh, it got me interested in, in photography as well. And several of the guys took me under their wings, so to speak, and kind of taught me basics about manual shooting. And so I'll sit here on my back porch and look over the lake out here and just shoot lightning a lot of times. Um, that's fascinating to me. I just don't want to be the guy that gets struck by lightning. So yeah, photography is probably my big one. Jackson, do you know that? <laughs> I, I didn't, but I do now. <laughs> I think uh, you. I think Chris may have to meet up with you, Ed. Y'all can go shoot some uh, some storms. I would love to do it. That's my favorite thing when it comes to photography. Oh, same here, man. I, I love a good lightning bolt, period. Oh, yeah. There, it's amazing. Uh, I've got a couple of good ones. If you look at my Facebook page, I posted one uh, a couple of days ago. In fact, it was a dual lightning strike. So. We retweeted that today on our page. Oh, cool. Yeah, you know, yeah. stores the last few days, you know, with all this daytime heating and stuff, it, it, there's been some like just prolific positive lightning strikes. I mean, just oh, huge. Yeah. tremendous amount. And uh, boy, those are the most beautiful ones to, 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 to photograph. I've learned that uh, your best bet is anything within three miles is going to usually produce a pretty pretty picture. Anything beyond that gets a little tougher to see. Uh, number one thing on your bucket list to do that you've not done yet. Oh my gosh. Move somewhere where the humidity is non-existent. <laughs> I never have to worry about a hurricane in my life. Um, no, I was born in Hawaii because uh, my dad was in the Marine Corps. So I want to go back to Hawaii. And I also want to go to New Zealand uh, simply because you can experience everything from volcanoes and deserts there to fjords and glaciers. So just from that uh, aspect, I'd love to do those two things. And, I, and the, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't know you had uh, 
I just feel like, you know, after 28 years in the business, if it all ended tomorrow, which I hope it doesn't, I felt like I've accomplished everything I wanted to do. So I could, you know, I hope to get to 60 years old and that's when I want to retire and just walk away. I don't want to be, you know, Emmett Smith and go to the Arizona Cardinals and retire and be remembered for that. So I want to get out when I'm still able to walk and have a lot of fun. I think we all can respect that. Last one. I think you've already answered part of this. What's your next holiday suit? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I uh, I don't know that there is a Thanksgiving one. Maybe Halloween because I know that uh, Oppa suit is where I got those, and they have a ton of Halloween suits. Um, I got to be careful about wearing them on the air because they're so distracting that people don't really hear what I'm saying sometimes because of the suits. But probably Halloween, I think, is, is the next one I'll do. Well, you make a good Riddler. What? Yeah, Riddler. There you go. Paint the face up and everything. We'll have to get you uh, hooked up with Larry Sprinkle. You know, he does all these costume changes uh, on Halloween morning during the newscast. So. Oh, that's awesome. Larry's <laughs> quite the character, too. Larry is a good one. Well, Ed, we appreciate your time. I know you have some family and you have the off night. So we appreciate you uh, joining us tonight. If our followers and listeners want to uh, follow you on social media and get the uh, latest information from Myrtle Beach, how can they do that? All right, on Facebook, it's simple, Ed Piotrowski, WPDE. Same for Instagram and on Twitter, it's Ed Piotrowski. And uh, hey, thank you guys so much for having me. I really had a ball. It's always fun talking weather with other weather nerds like yourselves. And, and I appreciate everything you do. I really mean that. I, I love following you guys all on Twitter. I think I just recently follow, started following Aaron, or Evan because I saw him in Charleston. So, Yeah, well, Ed, we appreciate your time and you're always a, a nice and uh, always uh, nice to donate some of your time to us, and, and we certainly appreciate that. And hopefully, it'll be a, a quiet tropical season. You don't have oh, to, I, to worry about too much. I hope that. so. Hey, listen, if you guys are ever down this way, look me up. We'll get together and have lunch or dinner. It'll be on me since we're on my home turf. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ed. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Take care and have a good night. Thanks, you too, Ed. All right, guys, that's Ed Piotrowski. I'm going to uh, toss it over to James. And, James, I think uh, we have some uh, news coming out. We're actually talking about roads and infrastructure, and I think we had a, uh, a news report coming out talking about that, uh, Dylan, here at the Carolinas and weather. Yeah, Scotty, that's absolutely right. We're going to go ahead and roll some. After North Carolina experienced a round. I'll lay down about nine winds and how and the wind how it is talking about during tonight's show about the infrastructure in his neck of the woods and also just to his north. All while repair work from 2016's damage to Hurricane Matthew was still underway in some spots. While coastal cities bear most of the brunt of storms, Wellington Mayor Bill Sappho says more inland communities are facing destruction. They're asking for better road structure. Saying, enough's enough. I'm moving to higher ground and saying I'm not going to experience another flood. I've had enough. Forbes Tompkins with the Pew Charitable Trust Flood Prepared Communities Program. Can After North Carolina experienced the wrath of two 500-year storms over the course of two years, there are calls for smarter federal investments on flood mitigation. Oh, Hurricane show. Florence flooded more than 1,200 roads great. in the state keeps, in 2016. All while repair the, uh, work from 2016's damage to Hurricane Matthew was still underway in some spots. While coastal cities bear most of the brunt of storms, Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho says more inland communities are facing destruction. A 
lot of those people are throwing up their hands and saying, enough's enough. I'm moving to higher ground and saying, I'm not going to experience another flood. I've had enough. Forbes Tompkins with the Pew Charitable Trust Flood Prepared Communities Program contends communities need more resources to protect infrastructure. At the federal level, there needs to be a greater investment and prioritization of pre-disaster mitigation and resilience to help these communities get ahead of the next storm. More than three dozen city leaders from North Carolina recently sent a letter to the U.S. House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure urging members to create a federal aid highway pre-disaster mitigation program. A Pew poll found 77 percent of Americans support a requirement that federally funded infrastructure in flood-prone areas be constructed to better withstand the impacts of flooding. And Tompkins encourages congressional leaders to better account for future flood risk as they work to modernize the country's infrastructure. Just to make sure that when we build something, we're doing it right the first time. Infrastructure is typically designed to last 40, 50, 60 plus years, so we need to account for risk throughout that design lifetime. Sappho adds that flood mitigation plans also should include larger stormwater ponds, upsized pipe infrastructure, and updated and expanded flood risk maps. While researchers predict a normal hurricane season this year, with up to three storms becoming major hurricanes, Sappho notes it only takes one to devastate a community. Something is happening in the environment that is triggering these events to take place more frequently, and the impact is much greater, and they seem to be much slower-moving storms, much wetter storms, which carry a tremendous volume of water. Data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration shows flood-related disasters have increased by tens of billions of dollars every decade since the 1980s. For Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. Support for this reporting was provided by the Pew Charitable Trusts. And guys, just today, those mayors met yet again to talk about what they were asking for from the federal government, as well as to tour ongoing repairs still in the greater Wilmington area, including Interstate 40, which, as you heard in the report, was cut off during Florence and is still a piece of infrastructure they would like to repair and improve upon ahead of whatever could be next. Scotty? I almost went a whole show without unmuting myself, but I couldn't do it. Thank you for that, James. I appreciate it. We're talking about tropics tonight. It seems like that is the theme this time of the year. And Shay, um, the tropics has really peaked up here over the past couple of days, and we are potentially on the verge of seeing our next named storm. That's correct, Scotty. Yeah, we're watching the Gulf of Mexico. We had a system that was over land over the Tennessee Valley known as the Mesoscale Convective Vortex really just a conglomerate or an aggregate of storms that holds together with some rotation. And that slid to the south. And this was seen days coming from land out over the water once it hit the water. Uh, the NHC and others had a pretty good idea that it would, might become a potential tropical cyclone. So I'm going to go ahead and share a screen. We can get a good look at this thing. And uh, today when Hurricane Recon went out, they didn't find any um, well-defined center of circulation out there. But right now here in the last frames before sundown, we see that explosion of convection out there. And this is really defining the center of, or the core of the storm right now, where all this convection is blowing up. So we're seeing some rotation, some broad rotation, really starting to aggregate around, or the convection aggregate around the core and the rotation starting to form. It's getting that look, in other words. Uh, if we look at um, the NHC's latest track, they're calling this potential tropical cyclone two. So basically what this is, is anytime we have a system that's going to be making landfall within a 48 hour period, they, they issue a PTC first before, and if it's not already a tropical storm, the next thing that it'll do likely tonight, or maybe even tomorrow morning, we may see this upgraded to a depression. 
And from that point, it becomes tropical storm. And there is a chance this could become a hurricane just before landfall in Louisiana. Now, if you, if you look at the track here, the cone of uncertainty is very wide. It includes portions of Texas all the way over towards Houston area. And then also over here to the east. So we have to consider that all of these points in between are potential targets for landfall. So don't um, think that just because the center of the track takes it right over central Louisiana, that that's going to be the exact landfall. That's what the model agreement is showing for the most part, a majority of them right now. Uh, we do have hot hurricane watches for most of the, hur the I'm sorry, hurricane, the uh, Louisiana coastline, tropical storm watch for uh, far eastern Louisiana inland. The thing about the storm is the rainfall amount. This is this is one of the big factors here. Louisiana, Baton Rouge just got flooded very badly today. These rivers, the Mississippi River and a lot of these other areas are already swollen above normal. So we're talking about dumping another foot and upwards towards 18 inches of rain on some of these areas as the storm makes its way north up into that area. So, uh, and even pushing further inland up into Arkansas, it's gonna get kind of caught between high pressure to the north and Atlantic high pressure to the east. And it's gonna get kind of wrapped up around a blocking pattern that's to the north that's gonna be heading east. So that's what's gonna be drawing it up through the heartland of the United States. If we look at um, the storm surge warning for right now, we're seeing storm surge effects. Let me pull this down here. And this is where the uh, storm surge watches. We don't have any footage of water yet for this. I think right now they're thinking maybe one to three feet as of this point, but if it becomes a hurricane, of course that will go up. The storm surge amounts will go up. Uh, either way, I think the Eastern side of the storm is where the biggest surge is going to come up with that southerly convergence into the coastline. So that's something to definitely watch. If we look at the arrival time of winds. Let me go ahead and but this out, we're looking at tropical storm force winds arriving as early as Friday morning for Louisiana. Uh, we could see some of those outwards effects by Thursday night, but if this becomes a hurricane, of course that wind field will expand. You may start to see those tropical storm force winds arriving even earlier, maybe even tomorrow or Thursday, uh, midday to afternoon. So keep that in mind as well. If we look at a quick broad perspective uh, or using our data scope product, we can see the winds coming in from all the directions. You can see where the center circulation is somewhere about here. Uh, winds, closest winds, the strongest with Pensacola buoy hitting about 25 miles an hour, and that's well away from the center. Uh, Hurricane Recon is out there right now. They found some winds uh, roughly up towards 35 knots, but not consistent enough to really get it up to that tropical storm status yet. So I still think it's it's taking its time. Uh, we'll know over the next 24 hours what this system is going to be capable of. I think uh, all eyes need to be on the coast if you don't have a plan make it now. This is the time now to start preparing if you live along the Louisiana, Texas, and even uh, Mississippi coastline, especially if you're on the rivers. Uh, those those advisories, flood warnings, all those are to come. But as far as right now, we have storm surge, high winds, uh, heavy rains, and flooding. Those are going to be the main factors right now. And that, that doesn't include even some of the severe effects that happen further inland with tornadic activity. So this is going to be a real problematic storm for the next few days for the northern Gulf of Mexico coastline. Scotty, back to you. Yeah, and, and just to catch in right before we kick it back to Scotty Shea, I saw the National Weather Service uh, put out some uh, information earlier that they were going to be doing special soundings uh, every six hours uh, from National Weather Service sites along the Gulf Coast to to better sound the atmosphere to, to ingest into the hurricane models to kind of get a better idea, hopefully, of uh, what this thing is going to do. No, that's so, right. Yeah, a lot of Weather Service offices, they start activating the weather balloon readings. They even supplement it. Some of the universities will supplement that with their own weather balloon readings. And then the hurricane recon drops soundings as well. We get um, air temperature, we get pressure. 
They also get gauges down into the water. They drop sonds into the water to get the depth of the warm water layer. And that's another factor is the sea surface temperatures are extremely warm. We're talking upper 80s to near 90 degrees on the, along the immediate surface and probably edging down towards 40, 50 feet below the surface. So there's plenty of fuel. If this storm stays on the moon and doesn't stall, it will continue to pick up more momentum over those warm sea surface temperatures. If it does stall for any reason, it may churn waters up and may get some cool water up on that may stave it off a little bit. But as far as the NHC is concerned, this does have every bit of potential to become a category one hurricane right before landfall. And, and Shay, that was one thing I was wanting to bring up with you. The, the track is really key. The further you can get it away from the Louisiana coast, you get those warm waters and you're just talking about how warm the Gulf waters are. Uh, and, and that is, is like you said, pretty high for this time of the year. I mean, this is normally ocean temperatures we'd see in late to or mid to late August. Am I not correct? Uh, it depends. Sometimes you get warm air, you get hot air fluxing in the Gulf. It's been really driven by high pressure for the most part this summer with the subtropical ridge. What? Let me put it on sea surface temperatures here. Subtropical ridge has been really... Uh, removed to the far north during this El Nino season. So it's just allowed a, a ridge or a blocking pattern over the Gulf for the most part. And so the waters have just been they've just been heating up down there without, without any tropical activity or fronts to make it down or any areas of low pressure spinning up to help turn the waters. This is what this is what occurs. I mean, um, this is kind of normal for this time of the year where Tampa Bay and some of those inland uh, water spots, coastal breaks may see those low 90s. Uh, and that's also driving red tide, which is another tropic. But uh, either way, you can see the sea surface temperatures are just baking hot. You know, we're, we're talking, um, you know, 88, 89 for portions of Louisiana. Uh, upwards, I think I saw 90 up in um, maybe Bayou, Benavue, one of these areas. I saw 91 degrees. So, um, you know, a little bit further offshore, maybe slightly cooler, but really you're talking 82 degrees is a magic number, 82.4 for a tropical system to really feed off of. And this is several degrees over that. So it, it's... um. It's not, it's, it's per, almost the perfect ingredients to build a tropical storm, especially with, with upper shear being relaxed aloft. There isn't really anything tearing the cloud tops off of the system either. It's just a matter of how fast we can get it on land before it intensifies even further. Yeah, and to reiterate, I know watching some of the comments, this is really no effects to the Carolinas as of right now. Uh, this will be more of a Gulf Coast storm, especially uh, if you live anywhere between uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, into Texas. So uh, if you live along the Carolina coast right now, this doesn't seem to be an issue at all. Uh, talking about Carolina weather, as we got uh, just a few more minutes here of our show, it uh, looks like uh, we're going to see some pretty warm temperatures coming up in the area um, Evan, I know you uh, monitoring that. You were talking about how it was warm yesterday in the mountains, and we had a little bit of a wedge here in the, the Piedmont, but it uh, looks like the warm temperatures are going to be heading our way quite quick or quite soon as uh, as we get into uh, into the weekend, into next week. Yeah, I know, Scott, you've been tweeting a little bit about that recently, so you may have a little bit better perspective on just how warm it's going to be next week. Uh, so I think you were saying that it might be some of the warmest of the season. But up here in the mountains over the next few days uh, for Western North Carolina and Northwestern South Carolina, we're looking at a little bit of a wet pattern with some showers and thunderstorms likely in the afternoons and evenings. Um, that should hopefully keep us near normal. Now, as Scotty was saying, once we get into next week, it could be a totally different ball game with uh, those higher temperatures. Definitely so. It looks warm over the area. And Peter, up in your area, uh, seeing the, the potential for maybe some mid-upper 90s up there with heat index over 100. Don't even get me started. Uh, yeah, it's been very hot up here. 
last few weeks, uh, we've been pretty much stuck in the 90s uh, with high humidity. And uh, with that comes storm chances. And we have had nothing but tornadoes this summer. Uh, this is like Tornado Alley 2.0 up here. Um, let's, let me show this graphic real quick. Uh, for the whole state of New Jersey so far this year, we have had 15 tornado warnings since April, which is very rare for us. We do not get that all the time. Uh, we'll maybe average about two tornadoes a year, if even that, that actually touch the ground. Um, so now we've been up to four tornadoes have touched the ground, mostly in South Jersey. And uh, yeah, it's been a crazy, crazy summer and spring so far. Also, severe thunderstorm warnings were up to 121 since March, which is also kind of rare. So, uh, <laughs> I don't well, know. They have us be here in Western North Carolina. <laughs> I yeah. mean, this is just nuts. Peter, have there been any injuries or casualties as a result of these tornadoes? Uh, so far, there has not. Uh, no injuries or deaths. So that's the good thing. Um, and the thing is, these have been just popping up out of nowhere, pretty much. Uh, there hasn't been any tornado watches. Um, they've just been little supercells that pop up, and uh, they just rotate within a couple minutes. So it's been crazy. That is, and it, that severe thunderstorm warning counts got us beat in the Carol Western North Carolina. Chris, are you uh, looking over anything over the next week for uh, the Midlands of South Carolina before we close out? Uh, basically, the same air mass. This the same little pattern is going to continue every day with the uh, with the above normal chances of rain every day. Uh, you know, summertime convection uh, really, really will uh, be the I guess the the big driving factor for our weather down in the uh, Midlands the next few days. But uh, late week, a front's going to move in, uh, and that's going to be the same front that's going to really affect what's going to happen with Barry. Um, and, and as that does, uh, the rain chances are only going to increase for the weekend. As far as temperatures are concerned down in the Midlands of, uh, of South Carolina and, and really down toward the coast, we're going to be a lot more closer to uh, near normal uh, as far as temperatures are concerned. But uh, uh, every day and every evening, expect these, these pop-up uh, rain showers to continue with uh, – with no real big synoptic support, you know, not, nothing really to help it over the top. These storms are just going to, you know, develop and they'll do their thing for about 30 minutes and they'll decay, put off a huge outflow boundary, which uh, creates a low level convergence and, and helps kick off more storms. So just uh, uh, be prepared for that for the next few days and uh, uh, temps are going to stay warm. Yep. And to, to Chris's point, we have the uh, Bermuda or Bahamian high, whichever one it wants to be, the blocking pattern off the Southeast coast, just keeps it in check. So it looks like a cold front will come here to die as usual. And so that's yeah, where it will yeah. out over your house, Chris, and you will get most of the storming and then we'll get sea breezes here at the coast. Nice return flow. It's going to feel like being in a convection oven. And uh, to Chris's point, and we'll, we'll log off after this, uh, he was talking about how slow these storms move. A friend of our show, Tim Buckley, uh, he tweeted out a, a graphic about an hour or two hours ago, and he said uh, he had an angry phone call from a viewer in Winston-Salem talking about they've had no rain at all when he's been forecasting rain. And so he showed a picture of the whole area over the last seven days. There's portions of um, the northern foothills of his area that picked up anywhere between six to seven inches of rain, three to five inches of rain in Greensboro. And Winston-Salem is kind of in the, the middle of both of those. And they had like a tenth of an inch of rain. So wherever these storms do pop up, they do produce a lot of heavy rain. I think there's been some flood warning, flash flood warnings out for the Columbia area over the past 
uh, last night or the past couple of nights and some severe thunderstorm warnings. So uh, these are some slow-moving storms. So if you get under one, uh, it may cool you off, but there may be some repercussions from that um, as well. So Yeah, that, that makes the probability of precipitation very hard to forecast because when you get storms lining up in one area, they tend to fire off the next day under the heat. So um, it's, it's almost like it's a repetitive process over those same areas over and over again. And, and you know we see that sometimes just inland here, uh, and especially in Colombia, some of those areas, especially even we get into like soil content, right? Like clays and loams and sand hills and things like that can all factor into it. So uh, you know when you see twenty percent chance of rain, just remember it's not there's a twenty percent chance of that it will rain. It means it's twenty percent chance it'll rain over the entire area, or, or percent chance that it'll rain in twenty percent of the area that's being forecasted. So. A little bit of a tricky situation there with forecasting rain, but just be patient. It will come. It will come. That is right. Well, guys, uh, thank you for watching tonight. We appreciate you uh, joining along. Next week, we have Dr. Ben Myris. He is from the USGS, and we're going to be talking about landslides, uh, something that you may not kind of think about during the weather, um, related to weather, but these are uh, totally related to uh, heavy rain events, and we've definitely had our fair share of heavy rain events in the upstate of South Carolina and Western North Carolina over the past couple of years. And that's resulted in some landslides. So we're going to talk about landslides next week, uh, talk about what causes them and maybe what you can do to prepare for them. So uh, we hope you will be with us again next week as we have Dr. Ben Myers on from the uh, USGS. So uh, for that, for everyone here at the Carolina Weather Group, we hope you have a great rest of the week. Have a great weekend. Stay cool out there. And we will see you here for another episode of the Carolina Weather Group next Wednesday night. Have a great night, everyone. Hey, this is Tim Pounds, digital content editor for the Carolina Weather Group. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to check out our weekly live stream every Wednesday at 8.15 p.m. Eastern on all the major streaming applications such as Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, and Twitch, just to name a few. Additionally, be sure to catch our weekly podcasts that are published on your favorite applications such as Anchor.fm, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts. Stay weather aware, drive hands-free, and have a wonderful day.